Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Yeah, hi everybody, and this is Kevin Fulton on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And today we're going to do things a little bit differently. Now, lately over the last maybe, I don't know, 20 podcasts, I've been spending uh, very little time doing an introduction and conclusion. And instead, we're going right into the interview and right out of the interview. But today is really important. And as I started to put together the production of today's podcast, I really felt that there were some places that we could improve the understanding of what Dr. Schmidt will eventually present, because I really want you to know this one. What we're talking about is something called RNA interference, and we've heard this a few times throughout the entire podcast series, Uh, most recently with uh, Dr. Mitter, where she talked about RNA interference and the ability to control pathogens in plants. Now, what we're talking about with RNA interference Let's go back to what's called the central dogma of molecular biology. You have DNA, the master blueprint, tucked away in the middle of the cell, hidden in the nucleus, right? DNA, at least inside a eukaryotic cell, so things like plants, animals, fungus, not bacteria. The nucleus holds the DNA, And this is the master blueprint, so you want to keep that tucked away and and, and unchanging okay, as much as possible. When a gene is turned on, there's this process called transcription, where a series of different proteins called transcription factors are recruited to DNA to create kind of a temporary um, labile copy of the information in the gene. They're in the information. So the information that's DNA gets copied to the RNA, and the RNA has some interesting facets to it. So it can be spliced, it can be rearranged, it can be um, processed, it can be degraded. The RNA is kind of this temporary 
state of the information in the DMA, and that leaves the nucleus, goes out into the cytoplasm. So it leaves the nucleus and out into the rest of the cell. And once it's into the rest of the cell, it's attached or it's recruited to what are called ribosomes. And these are the spots of protein synthesis. So proteins are the shakers and the movers of the cell. They build the structures. They do the catalytic functions like the enzymes. They make the chemistry go. So the information in DNA provides a blueprint for all of the hardware of the cell. Yet it goes to this intermediate called RNA. And RNA is the kind of the messenger, the carrier that moves from where the information is stored to where the information is used. Now this makes RNA a very attractive target for being able to turn genes on and off. It's kind of like, as I always describe it in my talks, if the DNA is the hard drive in your computer and the protein is the printed out pages of the printer, the USB drive is the RNA. It takes the information from your hard drive and moves it over to where the printer is. And so if you can get rid of that USB drive, you've now stopped the protein from being expressed or the pages from being printed. What we're talking about today is the process called RNA interference or RNAi. And Dr. Schmidt dives right into this and you know we go back and discuss it in a couple ways but I want you to know what this is before she starts talking about it because it's so important. There's a toxin that's produced in grains namely in corn called aflatoxin and she'll talk about more what it is and what the impacts are. It's produced by a fungus. So what if you could eliminate so if you think about the fungus that has genes in its nucleus that make an RNA that's eventually made to a protein and the protein goes and does a function in the cell that makes this toxin. What if the plant could make something to target the RNA that's required to make the proteins that make the toxin? You could essentially break the pathway by attacking the fungus's RNA. So what the idea is, is that somehow the plant can do this. The plant can produce a compound that's going to now attack the fungal RNA. And this is what we call RNA interference. Now inside a cell, the information in DNA is double-stranded, like a ladder. The information in RNA is like one side of that ladder. It's a single strand. So the same information, but not the two sides of the ladder, just one side. Now what if you could produce a complementary sequence, or in other words, the, if you have a single side of that ladder, if you could make the other side that matches it, something spectacular happens inside the cell. That double-stranded RNA isn't a favorable thing for the cell. It sees it potentially as a threat, maybe as a virus. And a cell has mechanisms that understand what double-stranded RNA is and degrade it. Now I won't spoil too much of the punchline here, 
But basically what the idea is, is that the corn has been programmed by Dr. Schmidt to produce the other side of the fungus's ladder. So the corn produces a molecule that when the fungus invades and takes up some of the cytoplasm, takes up this sequence that triggers this response. And it knocks out the genes that are required for the toxic compound to be formed. <laughs> Pretty cool. All right, so I hope that that's a helpful way to help us think about today's today's podcast. Um, it's a it's a wonderful interview. She does a beautiful job at talking about it. But I wanted to make sure we were all on the same page before we dive in. So here's today's interview with Dr. Monica Schmidt. And welcome to Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the podcast that talks about breakthroughs in biotechnology, whether they're in agriculture or in medicine, and uh, new solutions and innovations that can help people and help the planet. And if you didn't hear this week's story, maybe you were living under a rock somewhere, um, but it's a really interesting way in which we can use technology against fungus to make plant products healthier. And uh, we'll get into all the details of that with our interview today. And our interview today is with Dr. Monica Schmidt. And Dr. Monica Schmidt is at the University of Arizona. And she's in the School of Plant Sciences and the Bio5 Institute, which is a multidisciplinary program at the University of Arizona. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Schmidt. Thanks for inviting me, Kevin. Yeah, it's really nice that you were able to make the time for us. I'm guessing you're probably inundated with requests, right? <laughs> Yes, uh, especially last week, right before um, the article was going to be released. Yeah, see, we we I'm always a little bit late to the party, but we can <laughs> we we can go a little deeper. So um, the the story was a was a really cool one because what it talks about are ways that and well, we'll let you describe that. But essentially, it comes up with a biotechnology solution to a problem called aflatoxins. And what are aflatoxins? So maybe we start there. So aflatoxins are small compounds, they're secondary metabolites produced by some species of fungus, and there's few species of aspergillus in particular that produce them. And they are a known potent carcinogenic compound. So most of the incidents of liver cancer around the globe are caused by the consumption of aflatoxins. They're also implicated to stunt children's growth, and they're implicated in um, making people much more susceptible to other secondary infections like HIV and malaria. Okay, and so you, you you said like HIV and malaria. So is this really a problem in the developing world more than in the industrialized world? So it's a it's more of a critical health concern in developing countries, but here in the U.S., it's more of an economic concern. So here, farmers will test their crops. And if they're at, a, at or above a certain level, that product cannot move forward into the pipeline to become a product for human consumption. And here in the U.S., it's pretty low at 20 parts per billion. And I had to do the math to figure out what a part per billion is. And one part per billion on a time frame is one second in 31.7 years. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of how small we regulate it here in the U.S., 
and we do lose globally uh the corn is the crop we targeted globally we lose about 16 million tons of corn that have tested above the limits that can move forward because of this toxin so it's an economic problem because of that but in developing countries where i'd really like to see this go it's a it's a chronic health concern people are eating unknown and dangerously high levels of food contaminated with this toxin and so it comes from a so you mentioned corn um, is it mostly something that comes on corn or is it on other grains as well yeah corn is probably the the biggest one that we lose globally because of this uh, but usually when you talk to peanut farmers, it strikes terror in their heart because mm-hmm. it's one of the bigger problems in peanut. It's a problem in rice, a little bit of a problem in soybean, almond, pistachios. The list can go on and on. Wow. And, and so it comes from a, but it comes from a fungus uh, called aspergillus. Is that the correct one? Right. There's two species of aspergillus that can produce this toxin. And how do they uh, how do they get onto the corn? Are they introduced from? Are they just ubiquitous in the environment, and that they can get into corn, or are they vectored in by pests or um, other types of insects? So I think both are happening. I'm not a plant pathologist, but my understanding is it's a fungal soil, which is why peanuts tend to get really covered in the fungus because they're grown in the soil. Uh, But they can also uh, get transmitted into crops like corn because it's an opportunistic fungus. So when the crop is already stressed out because of insect feeding, (laughs) it will Mm -hmm. then infect that uh, wound site. Or when a crop is already stressed from drought, which we see a lot in developing countries, it will then infect the crop. Wow, I see. And so how did you really have any kind of numbers for maybe in the industrialized world, how much of an effect this has on people and maybe in the developing world? Or are those numbers just really hard to get or even estimate? So the CDC estimates that four and a half billion people in developing nations are chronically exposed to aflatoxin contaminated foods. Well, that's like all of them. <laughs> I mean, it really is four a, and a half billion. It's a lot. People. Unfortunately, it's a lot. Yeah. Wow. So, so it, this is really an important solution. And how do they control it currently? What's the best way to ensure that, other than like you as you mentioned, don't let it in the supply chain? But what is a way that either in the industrialized world or the developing world that precautions are taken to prophylactically uh, provide a solution to the problem? So there's a myriad of different things that uh, growers do to try to control this uh, in developed and developing countries. Uh, Some of them are while the crop is still growing in the fields. So they have a biological control, which could be a fungus that can maybe outcompete the toxin producing one. So you can spray that on your crops and hopefully the toxin producing one won't grow Uh, Really just trying to ensure that you don't get a lot of insects or stress on your crops will really help that this aspergillus opportunistic parasite can't infect your crops. Uh, And post-harvesting is really important. So this can, uh, fungus can get on your crops growing in the fields or in storage. So there's a lot of mechanisms to have um, air-free 
storage containers, and that really eliminates any kind of post-harvest contamination or loss of your crops. So if there's no air, the fungus can't grow, and that's true also for, like, insects can't feed, they can't get in. So there's these gigantic Ziploc bags that people use to store their crops. There's some fans that are installed in the top of basically their storage silos that reverse the airflow out and they could be solar powered, so it's good for developing nations. Wow. So you're looking at a situation here where you have, we have a very potent um, carcinogenic uh, compound that comes from a fungus that's opportunistic on crops in both the industrialized world as well as the developing world, and that there are some solutions, but they sound kind of clunky and uh, maybe expensive and maybe not accessible in the developing world. Okay, so we have this framed really beautifully. You have a a major problem that's affecting many people with chronic exposure all over the world, including here in the industrialized world. We do have some exposure and uh, huge economic losses for uh, different crops, especially corn. And then we're going to come back on the other side of the discussion here, the other side of the break. We'll talk about your solution. We're talking to Dr. Monica Schmidt from the University of Arizona, and we'll be right back with the Talking Biotech podcast right after this. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. We get a lot of questions about how this thing is financed, who does the production, and who does the website. Some even tell us they think it has the fingerprints of Monsanto. Well, allay your suspicions, chemtrail sniffer. This work is done 100% by your host, Kevin Folta. He personally pays for the service space, the domain names, the whole enchilada. And you can tell by the flimsy production, he engineers this thing too. From arranging the guests to post-production to website, this is 100% his time and his dollars. So we're passing the hat of gratuity and asking you for a little contribution. Write a review on iTunes. Tell a friend. Post a flyer about this podcast on the Whole Foods Community Bulletin Board. See how long that stays there. We're rapidly moving up the iTunes ratings... And you, gentle listener, are the gas in the tank of science communication and the thorn in the side of agriculture misinformation. Now, back to the Talking Biotech podcast, already in progress. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, today talking to Dr. Monica Schmidt, who's an assistant professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And her work has recently received a lot of really well-deserving fanfare. Before the break, we discussed the problem of aflatoxins and how a certain Aspergillus species will produce these very potent fungal pathogens, which do cause health effects in possibly billions of people. So now we can talk about your solution. What did you do uh, to corn to allow it to become uh, resistant to the aflatoxin fungus. Right. So um, I've worked for a few years uh, in RNAi, so RNA interference technology, 
where you insert a small RNA molecule to be expressed, in, in my case, in a, a corn kernel, and that forms a hairpin structure, and that induces the whole dicer pathway to chew up that RNA into small RNAs, and then it seeks out its match, and when that double RNA structure is seen, the cell automatically degrades that whole transcript. So it's a way of um, looking at basic biology, get rid of a transcript, and see what would happen then with no transcript, no protein. And uh, I came across some papers a few years ago now that showed these small RNA molecules could actually pass between a host and its pathogen. And that led me to think, well, why can't we take care of this infecting fungus, this aspergillus, by taking a similar approach? And when you cross that species barrier using RNAi, it's now called host-induced gene silencing, or HIGS for short. So we took this HIGS approach um, to stop the aflatoxin. See, I just love this. But let me go back because even though I think most okay. people really understand what you're talking about there, let me go back for some of the folks who are just following <laughs> along. So when we're talking about genes being expressed, we have DNA that's tucked away in the nucleus. That is, uh, the sequences in DNA and the information in DNA uh, is then copied onto this intermediate called RNA, which is an, a kind of an unstable intermediate that leaves the nucleus and goes out into the cell. Now, that RNA that's out there in the cell um, then can be translated, which means that the information is, is that it encodes is then turned into, essentially, that information is used to create a protein. And proteins are what do all the work in the cell and give lots of structures. In the case of RNAi or RNA interference, and this is a, a, a wonderful process that was discovered in plants uh, by somebody, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, right there at University of Arizona, Richard Jorgensen. <laughs> um, and uh, we can talk about that later. Um, RNA interference is kind of the way of you take that RNA sequence that's in that intermediate and you provide... As a, so scientists can provide an RNA sequence, which is a direct match, like a zipper. And when that duplex forms, and we heard Dr. Schmidt talk about this hairpin, when these hairpins form or these RNA duplexes form, it triggers a system in the plant, which then degrades that sequence. So it's kind of a way of turning a gene off after it was originally turned on. And so this is a way, um, so the sequence that you put in, into the plant, is actually a fungal sequence, right? Right. So once once we knew that all eukaryotes have this system, fungi included, <laughs> that as soon as they see the double-stranded RNA molecule, it will trigger that cell to degrade that double-stranded RNA. So what we did was we put a small sequence from the fungal gene that we wanted to target, and we picked a very specific enzyme in the aflatoxin pathway called the polyketide synthase. It is precursor to all the four medically relevant aflatoxin molecules, and it's also pretty huge. It's 7 kb. So to give you a frame of reference, most genes are about 1,500 or 2,000 kb. So we actually took three different areas. We took an area at the beginning, in the middle, and the end and made this um, RNA be expressed in the edible portion, so only the maize kernels. 
And the idea is as soon as the kernel is developing, it's expressing those small RNAs and that small RNA is just sitting there in the corn kernel waiting uh, for uh, aspergillus to come. And when the aspergillus infects, that small RNA passes into the aspergillus. It, those three different fragments will find their matching transcript, which is encoding for that polyketide synthase enzyme. And when it when they bind to that, it degrades that whole transcript. If there's no transcript, no RNA, no protein, no toxin. Wow. So it's basically a way of having the corn express a fungal sequence that when the fungus takes it up, destroys the sequence in the fungus that's required for the toxin production, right? Right. And so what? why would you choose the fungal toxin synthesis rather than some other metabolic function of the fungus itself? Because it seems like the fungus would still grow just fine, but just wouldn't produce the toxin. Yes, if you see our manuscript, the fungus is growing perfectly fine. And actually, we um, quantitated how much fungus was growing in all our samples to prove that we had an equal amount of fungal growth on our transgenic versus our controls. So we have equal amount of fungal growth, but we don't have any toxin that we can detect in our transgenics. And the reason I decided to hit the aflatoxin is it's such a specific compound in nature that I wasn't worried about off targets in humans or the corn, uh, but I might be concerned about that if I hit something that was necessary for fungal growth. But now that I've got this success under our wings about suppressing the toxin, we are indeed trying to stack on top of this something that will deter the actual fungal growth. Yeah, so that was that was kind of where I was going was I don't have a polyketide synthesis or <laughs> wait, 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 what was this one again? Poly polyketide synthase. It's yeah. actually pretty common, but this one when I looked at the sequence and we did a quick a scan of the human genome, pig, corn, to see if we could find uh, sequences in that fungal gene that were going to be specific. Okay, so that means that it would affect the fungus, but it wouldn't affect any other organism that had even that had this gene. I mean, is that gene conserved across eukaryotes? Uh, there are various versions of this kind of gene, but this one looks the whole sequence of it because it's so big is uh, in in the aspergillus. Okay, so that way, in that way, it makes a rather ideal target because right. then you don't have to worry about, as you mentioned, uh, other effects. Are there any other effects inside the corn itself that are induced because of this RNA that you expressed? Right, so with any GM technology, there's always that concern that the trait we put in would have these other unintended consequences. So you're right, because we expressed a novel RNA in the corn kernel, the first concern was the presence of this small RNA molecule now in corn. Does it have any unintended consequences in the development of the corn kernel itself? So we did some transcript analysis. So the total RNA population of two non-transgenic control plants and three transgenic plants that we knew were expressing that RNA at a stage where we knew that RNA was expressed. And we did all pairwise comparisons to see if we saw any significantly difference in that RNA population. And we didn't see a single significant different transcript in the transgenics versus the controls. 
Wow. So basically, let me just unpack that again for the non-experts out there who are listening, is that when you turn on this little piece of fragments that are directed against the fungal gene, that they don't have any collateral effects in corn, which is kind of remarkable because you think that maybe something in there might be affected, but does it really tell us about the specificity of the RNA silencing system? Well, it tells us that in the corn kernel, it didn't cause any specific transcript differences. So there would have to be a lot of other testing. Um, Any consumer that might eat it downstream, at what levels would they eat that RNA? And actually, the the biggest question now we're looking at is, is that RNA molecule in the dry corn kernel, which is something somebody would eat? And of course, this has to be a metabolically active corn to be expressing that RNA. So I really doubt that that's going to be the case. I think that RNA molecule is gone by the time it's a dried corn kernel. I see. So they're not talking about this particularly being useful in corn storage or spoilage, but maybe more in um, corn as as it's growing in the field. Right. Yeah. So when I originally proposed this, it was to help uh, the crops in the field. So it would still have to be in conjunction with a very good storage system so you don't get contamination after you store it. But this would help ensure you don't have contamination when you harvest. The beauty of this is that it really shows the proof of concept for this approach using, you know, having the the crop produce this RNA target that uh, then goes out and finds a fungal target to take out. So are there other applications that you're looking at for the same technology maybe down the road? Yeah, so it opens up really any other crop that has aflatoxin contamination, but aflatoxin isn't the only mycotoxin, and it's also not the only kind of host pathogen problem that we have right now. We have a number of crops right now that are suffering from some kind of pest, and right now the biggest one I've got my sights on is uh, citrus greening. Ah, wonderful. I know all about that. <laughs> Being from Florida, I imagine you do, yeah. Yeah, we, we're, it's, it's pretty awful down here. And, well, you have in Arizona too, right? I've, I've seen a lot of citrus trees there that didn't look so hot. Yeah, we've just got them uh, not commercially grown though. Yeah, I've, I've even just seen them around ornamental ones, I think I've yeah. seen on campus there. Um, yeah. But what about, um, what about uh, the commercialization of this kind of crop? Is this something that anybody's looking at seriously to either commercialize for the industrialized world or are governments maybe in places in uh, Africa or Southeast Asia, mostly I guess sub-Saharan Africa, has some places that grow maize. Are they interested in this particular technology? Um, So the paper was just released Friday. So I'm currently looking to see if anybody's interested in exactly that. Yeah, so maybe they're listening to the podcast. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, we get all the way into Kenya sometimes. I know they grow lots of corn, and they've had their share of challenges with respect to growing maize. And so the. The one thing I did want to say uh, regards to that is I was thrilled that this uh, research got into the Open Access Science Advances Journal because it's exactly that. Anybody with the Internet access can access this research. Well, this is really an exciting find to actually see this in, in science, but I love the fact that it got such great play in the news because this is the kind of excitement in genetic engineering that uh, really kind of changed the our ability to communicate about it, you know, talk about the good ways in which it can be used. 
And if, if people wanted to learn more about this technique or more about your lab or, or what you do, do you have a uh, presence online or social media? Um, I do have a Twitter account. Uh, it's Monica Schmidt 414. Well, Monica, thank you so much for being on the Talking Biotech podcast. This is really great and best wishes in what you do going forward. Great. Well, thank you so much for your interest. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.